Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to another Ilmfeed podcast episode. It feels like it's been ages since I've um, addressed you all, but alhamdulillah, we're back. And today I have a lovely guest with me. Uh, my guest is <coughs> Sister Shahida, Sister Shahida Rahman. I'm going to just invite her on and then introduce her. Sister Shahida is an author and writer. She writes historical fiction, non-fiction and children's stories. She's won numerous civic and cultural awards for her work, mashallah. Uh, she was born and raised in Cambridge in the UK and is a trustee of the Cambridge Central Mosque, the big eco-mosque that was recently built, which is Cambridge's first purpose-built mosque and Europe's first eco-mosque. And it opened to the public in early 2019. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Shahida. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you very much for having me. I've uh, been wanting to speak to you for a long time. Um, uh, and I just realized that, you know, you're an author of so many books, mashallah, you know, I hadn't even... I hadn't initially intended to speak to you about those. Uh, so you're you're a lady of many talents, mashallah. Uh, what's it been like um, growing up in Cambridge? Because I think you're, like I grew up in the 80s and 90s um, in London, but I think you you go back even before that, right? So we'd love to hear about your your background and especially, you know, did you always live in Cambridge? Um, and have you always lived there? Yeah, I was born in, and raised in Cambridge. So my father, he came to Cambridge in 1957 and he arrived wow. from East Pakistan. So East Pakistan became Bangladesh in 1971. And that was the year that I was born. I was born two days before the independence. So my father had an wow. opportunity to come to England uh, he was orphaned at a young, young age. He had uh, siblings. Uh, and Alhamdulillah, um, it was an opportunity to come to England. So he arrived in London. And then someone brought him to Cambridge. I think there was work here. So he came to Cambridge in 1957, and it was September. Uh, and he worked for about six, seven years. Um, and my mother arrived in January 1964. Uh, and then my siblings and I were born here. So uh, there was five of us, uh, uh, my twin sister, myself, three older brothers. We were all born in Cambridge and we still live here today. Uh, so it was quite, um, we've seen the community grow. We've seen how the Muslim community has grown. Uh, and we were one of the early families here. Uh, so we can tell these stories, you know, what happened in the 70s and 80s. And it's nice to be able to tell those stories because I tell those stories to my children because we've seen how the first mosque was established here in a house on Chesterton Road. Then they moved to Mawson Road in 1981. To be able to tell that, I think, you know, alhamdulillah, it's, it's a story in itself. Um, so uh, my father passed away when I was 13. Uh, we were very, very young. And my mother, alhamdulillah, she's still alive today. She's 82. 
Um, and uh, I have, uh, I'm married, I have uh, four children. So Cambridge has been our home all our, all our life. And it's, uh, well. it's where we've settled and where we built our lives. Uh, and that's the reason why men did come over at that time to have a better life, uh, to build their lives. And this is exactly what my father did. Mm, because Cambridge is famous probably in most people's minds for the university, right? Cambridge University uh, yes. being one of the most uh, prestigious institutions in the world. Um, so, but, and and most of the time, I, I kind of imagine that Muslims were mainly in the really big cities, you know, like Manchester, Birmingham, London, uh, and those sorts of cities, right? In, in England, at least. Um, so I was quite surprised to hear that, you know, right from all that way back, uh, your family had actually made their roots in Cambridge. So, so what was it like? Like, how would you describe, because I remember the 80s in London. Uh, it was, well, obviously it depends on which kind of area you lived in and things like that. But for us grow, growing up um, in kind of our primary school years in East London, um, and then later on in North London, uh, there was a huge difference between, you know, the lifestyles in both places. Uh, one was very multicultural, very quite rough, if you if you want to call it that. Um, both places had racism, for example, but in different kind of ways, you know. Uh, one was a bit of a more kind of posh racism, and <laughs> the other was a little bit more of a kind of raw blatant racism uh what was it like to be a muslim in cambridge w were you guys practicing like did you visibly look like muslims um at that time i would say well we grew up on mill road so this is where cambridge central mosque is at the top of mill road my father uh had his first house just off mill road and i was born off mill road there was a, a maternity hospital there so at the time, I think more people were interested in our background as the country that we came from. We were Asian right. at the time. Asians, yeah. So, uh, but um, during that time, there were other, uh, we say, uncles uh, uh, who actually had been here, arrived here before my father had done. Uh, so there was a very, very small community then. And my mother tells these stories. She's told us about who was here. There were... Uh, the men who established the first Indian restaurants, because my father went on to establish his first business, his first restaurant on Regent Street. And uh, oh, so at, at the time, yes, we, we did grow up. We went to primary school, went to secondary school. People were very curious uh, about our religion, about Islam. We had very good conversations. Um, and because we were a few uh, in our secondary schools, um, where it was quite interesting. I wouldn't say it was multicultural because there were just a handful of Asian families, uh, Asian children actually uh, attended the schools. But I think with Cambridge, it's an amazing city. But we have to uh, remember that even though it is a university city, there is a two-class divide here. I think a lot of people wouldn't think that. 
Um, but being in Cambridge all my life and growing up here, I've seen that. But it's a tolerant mm. city. And I, and I would say today, Cambridge is very, very diverse. We have such a big Muslim community now, uh, communities who have come from all over the world. But Muslims were in Cambridge over 100 years ago. You know, we, we found stories where wow. there were a very, very um, small uh, number of men who came here. So I'm doing research about who are the Muslim men who came before the 1960s. And when I say Muslim men, I, I've not come across any Muslim woman. Uh, I'm still doing that research. But my mother can claim that she was the first Sileti woman. So Silet is where my parents came from in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. And she quite proudly claims that because she said when she arrived, there were no other um, Sileti women. I say Sileti, not Bengali, because there could have been somebody who came as a student and brought their wife with them. Well, we think that was quite mm -hmm. possible. So uh, my mother said when she was here, there was no other woman around. Um, she left her family behind. And for her experience, you know, we're telling these stories now because Bangladesh is 50 years old this year and we're talking about our heritage more, our history more. And my mother said um, with the neighbours that she had, the first house that they moved to, uh, that people were very curious about the kind of clothes she wore. She wore saris. She still wears saris uh, today. You know, the kind of cooking she did. You know, people are very, very kind, very nice. And uh, she has a very, very sort of vivid, very sharp memory of the day she came off the plane. Uh, a brother picked up my uh, my my father and my, and my mother. And uh, my mother said it was sad in a sense because she left behind her mother, my grandmother. Her grandfather had passed away when she was very young. She had siblings, brothers and sisters over there. So it was a new beginning, new chapter of her life. But she did miss home. You know, it was um, a completely new life, a completely new country. And I think a lot of women who came at that time would have felt exactly the same. Uh, but, but going on, going back to your question about, you know, the, the, the Muslim community, you know, we are, uh, my siblings and I, uh, there's three of us left now because my twin sister, she passed away many years ago. Uh, my eldest brother passed away. But we are, you know, us three, we can tell these stories. We can say that we went mm. to the first mosque, which was the house on Chesterton Road. My parents sent us there. We learned uh, Quran reading. We learned Arabic. There were other uh, children who also attended at the time. So I'm talking about the late 70s. Uh, and because we had that small group, we were able to learn our Arabic. And I think that was very important for us. We learned at a very young age. My mother also brought in uh, Arabic teachers at home. So we had that one-to-one -one tuition. We all learned together, my siblings and I, because in those days, we didn't have those resources. You know, there weren't books available like they are now. We didn't have mm. the internet. We yeah. had to learn from the person who taught us. And there was one man who was a teacher. He came from Kuwait. Um, Alhamdulillah, he, he taught us what we needed to know. He was a good friend of my father's. And, and, and we learned our Arabic. And the way that we learned, I would say, we learned it the proper way that we could have learned, despite not having mm -hmm. our Arabic books and, and our resources. And I think looking back on that, 
you know, I tell my children, you're very lucky. You've got everything that you could ever want to learn Islam, to learn Arabic. You've got no excuse. You know, all the resources are there. But for us, it was even, we even learned Bengali, our own uh, mother tongue, uh, to read and write. And again, it was one to one tuition at home. So we had the balance of two. So I can speak Bengali fluently. You know, we learned to speak that at home. So it was learning, you know, two languages, but but we did it. And, um, mm. you know, alhamdulillah, we learned as what we we should know. And we learned to read the Quran at a very young age. And uh, even though there were times when we hated these one-to-one tuitions, Bengali one-to-one tuitions, and my mother brought in teachers. But I can see why that was important for her at that time. And, and looking back on that, thinking it's really yeah. important to learn your mother tongue, to learn your culture, your heritage. Absolutely. That's yeah. important for me. It may not be important for someone else. But now I, I've passed that on to my children and they have to understand, you know, where, why my father came here, you know, his background. You know, we, we can say we're British all we want. You know, I was born and raised here, but I'm, I may be British, but I'm also Bangladeshi and I'm also Muslim. And I would say, you know, I've been asked this question before, what would you say that you are first? You know, obviously mm. I'm a Muslim first because Islam is the number one uh, part of our life. You know, without Islam, we are lost. You know, so I, I would say I'm a Muslim first, but then I'm also Bangladeshi, you know, and I'm also, you know, when we say we're British, you know, that, that comes later, I would say, because I was born and raised here. These three are, are my identity. And that would describe, you know, my background, my heritage. Mm, so that's think, interesting because yeah. um, I was, you just made me think what what order would I put it in, you know? Um, and I think for me, I would definitely say Muslim first, yes. simply because that's about meaning, isn't it? It's 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 not about like location or some kind of yeah. arbitrary thing, right? Um, that's about the compass by which we live our lives. Um, but then I think I would say British <laughs> before Indian. <laughs> I hope that doesn't make me sound, you know, No, no, I, mean, I thought about that in the past, you know, what comes first <laughs> after being a Muslim? Mm. But, that, um, but that kind of shows that you, you, the fact that you put Bangladeshi, you know, there is, it, it feels like you have a very strong connection to that. Whereas not all of us grew up with, I mean, we grew up with Urdu language and mm. we were connected to our culture through, I guess, popular culture, you know, dramas and films and those kinds of things. But in terms of as a place to visit, we didn't really visit very much. Um, so I think it's hard for some of us to, to feel that strong sense of connection with our um, parents' countries, you know. Uh, but it's so interesting that you have that connection. And it seems like you consider it very important to tell those stories because one of your books, Las how do you pronounce it? Laskar? Laskar, yes. In Urdu we right. say in Urdu we say Lashkar. So Lashkar, yes. Uh, and that is the same yeah. word. That, that is more of the Western term, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I just want to okay, sort of add to your, your, the point mm. that you said. Um, for yeah. me, 
you know, about identity, about who we are. I think that recently sort of came to play, you know, in my life because um, it, it's just because also we've lost our father at a young age, okay? And mm. as we've grown up and I'm, you know, approaching 50 now and uh, we're starting to look at, you know, the, the lives of our parents, about what's going on around the world. I think it's given us a deeper meaning and a deep, deeper, you know, thinking. You know, I, I'm looking for stories of Muslims who who were here, the kind of lives that they had, what it meant to, mm. for, for them to be here. Uh, can you but, tell us some little interesting things about, uh, can you tell us some examples, like people listening might be thinking, before the 60s and 50s, there were Muslims, like what kinds of, you don't need to go into a lot of detail, but uh, what kinds of people are we are we looking at? Yes, yeah, so um, the story started where um, someone brought uh, to our attention, my son and me, Ibrahim and I, uh, two photos of two graves that are buried in Cambridge. And they said there were names of two men and it said East Pakistan. Wow. So one of them died in 1964, one of them died in 1966. So we um, did more research on that. So my mother remembers the man who died in 1966. He was an ill man. Uh, and she remembers someone dying and then there was a janaza. Okay, so in those days, everyone knew when someone had passed away. Passed away. So, mm -hmm. so we did further research. So they're buried in a churchyard in Cambridge, the Ascension Parish Burial Ground. And a lot of famous people apparently are buried there, you know, past historians. Quite interesting to find why we had five Muslim graves in a corner of that cemetery. And uh, we discovered there was a 23-year-old Cambridge University student from India. He died in 1923. And we found that absolutely fascinating. Oh. He was ill. Uh, he didn't get to complete his studies. We we, f we found details of, you know, his parents. His surname was Talukdar. And that's a very old sort of surname uh, to come Can up with. Can you say so it again? Talukdar. Um, mm. So, you know, it's, and is that it's a Bangladeshi No, it's India. So he came from India. So it wasn't mm. the Bangladeshi side. So you have to remember when East Pakistan prior oh, yeah. to that was East India. So he's still part of exactly, India. Exactly, of course. So yeah. he was a yeah. student there. So there were students who came here. So uh, we discovered he was from a wealthy family. Okay. His father sent him to Cambridge to study. But with the other two men that mm. uh, I, I just told you about, they came here to work. So they arrived before my father had arrived. One of them actually um, got struck down by a bus in the middle of the city centre and he died from his injuries. Then we discovered that his family live in Cambridge. Um, so his extended family are, are here, you know, to this day. And I, for me, that felt like a very sad story because we've got two, you know, five Muslim graves in a graveyard, in a church, and they're just there. And no one knew about mm. these people being buried here. And now that the family know, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we can all make prayers for them. But it's oh, how they even came about to be buried in a churchyard. But in those days, there wasn't a separate Muslim burial ground. Uh, the university, it belonged to the university and they were allowed to be buried here. So I'm looking at further research because for me, it's important to tell these untold stories because this is what I want to find out. 
you know, about Cambridge. No one has really sort of discovered these stories. And for me to be able to sort of tie that in with our heritage, you know, who these, who these people were. But again, they came for a better life. They came to work here. They had families back home. This was the traditional um, journey that they did. They worked, they sent money home to support families. Uh, but then for them to, to pass away at, uh, at a young age, they were both in their mid thirties. Uh, you know, I think that's, mm -hmm. that's quite sad and to be buried alone in a graveyard and they had no family here at the time. They absolutely had no family here. So, um, but for, for me, that is, I, I just feel it, it's something that I'm interested in and to be able to tell those stories because for future generations, I want them to know that Muslims mm -hmm. didn't just come in the 60s and 70s. You know, there was a large influx <laughs> yeah. all over the UK, but there were people already here at the time. They were settled, they were working. And, uh, you know, let's tell these stories, not the stories that have already been told. Oh, Jazakallah Khairan. I'm so fascinated. I'd, I'd love to read about those individuals. I mean, I'm looking forward to your future books, inshallah, and, and also catching up on some of the books you've already written. Um, if I can also Sister add, um, Yes. I was just going to add, uh, we've got a website, Cambridge Muslim Heritage. Uh, the details are on okay. there about you've got a website. Mm. About. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, Cambridge Muslim Heritage. Okay, excellent. Um, I wanted to also ask you, uh, because I in your little biography that I read, um, you got married pretty young, you know. <laughs> in one place I read mm. 18. <laughs> I don't know if it was if you were 18 or 19 um, at the time. But you got married pretty young. Um, I myself got married when I was 19 as well. I was engaged at 18 and married at 19. Uh, so I haven't met that many people, <laughs> you know, who who got married that young. So that I felt quite, uh, that would be an interesting thing for us to speak about um, because I guess the trend at the moment is probably to delay marriage, you know, for, for girls. Um, so I thought maybe we could like explore uh, what we felt are some of the positives and some of the challenges of getting married young, you know, uh, like what would you say were some of the, uh, were some of the positives? And, and first of all, why, why did you get married at that age? So my, my mother married me off at the age of 18. And I think it would have been the fact that we lost our father at a young age. And uh, so my mother took my sister and me back to Bangladesh and I, I was married first. So I was um, 18, just over 18. And when you get married, uh, you literally have to grow up overnight. You're, you're a young girl and then you become a woman. That's how I, I would see it. So I think um, mm. in, in those days, you know, you're reaching your 20s and life's just beginning, isn't it? You're young. You've got ambitions, you want to do things. And I, I alhamdulillah, I've got four children. I've got three sons uh, and a daughter. And I had them young. Okay, so my eldest son was born at the, when I was 19. Uh, and, and then I went on to have uh, uh, my other children. 
And I think with the challenges, you know, looking back on it now, I would say it was good I had them young, okay, uh, because, you know, we chose that um, I would stay at home and look after them. So I wasn't working. I didn't have a career. I stayed at home and I raised my children. And at that time, mm -hmm. I felt um, I'm just at home looking after my children. You know, I'm not doing anything. And that, that that's how it felt at the time. You know, I'm just a housewife and uh, a mum of uh, children. I'm raising them. Uh, and looking back on it now, because I'm older, I, I see that that's probably the best thing that I ever did. Because my children, as with any children, they need their parents. Okay, Not everyone can have that luxury. You know, some sisters do need to go out and work now. But uh, for me, it was important for me to be there for my children, you know, take them to school, pick them up, um, you know, be a homemaker. You know, our work never ends as, as wives and as mothers, you know, even though my children are older now, they have different cares and needs. You know, I'm still there for them. They, they can do things independently, but I'm still a mum to them and I still see them as my children, you know, uh, mm. they, they can be whatever age they are they're still my children and um, I think being a housewife and being a mother that, that's very undervalued at times you know, in these days no one wants to stay at home and be labelled as a housewife but we have to remember you know Islam has given uh, us blessings where you know Allah's given us blessings where you know we have opportunities you know family life always had come first for me you know, regardless. I think in the last 10 years, this is when my, I would say, career took off. I started writing. I don't think I would have become an author it's because I was at home. I wanted something to do. My daughter was born in 2003. And that's, I think it started from there, really. I just felt that I needed to do something in my life, uh, that, you know, years were passing and I've not really sort of achieved anything. So that's where it sort of de developed from. But then because my children were older, it, it was slightly easier to be able to do the things I, I did. So I, I wrote my first book. It was published in 2012. Uh, I started writing in 20, 2006. And now um, uh, I am working full time. Uh, I also... Uh, uh, I, I'm still writing books. I've written my second book that will be published, inshallah, next year. I'm also a trustee of Cambridge Mosque. I'm working with the Museum of Cambridge and a, as an advisor to the trustees. I'm on a community panel with Kettle's Yard, which is uh, a house that belongs to the university. It's a small museum. And uh, I'm also involved with other you know, organisations. And mm -hmm. for, I think it started off you know, doing a lot of voluntary work. Um, people undervalue that. You know, for me, I learned a lot of skills doing voluntary work, but I enjoy working with people and, you know, being able to be part of decision making and not sit back and let decisions be made for me. You know, I, I've that sort of developed over the years where I would say 10 years ago, I wouldn't be able to stand in front of a group of people and, and do a speech. That was not possible for me. I was shy, you know, I, I, I needed that confidence to be able to do that. Ten years on, you know, alhamdulillah, I've done that. 
know, I, I learned to do that myself. There have been people who have supported me in my work. But, my, you know, my children have also been part of that journey. You know, my husband's been part of mm. that journey, you know, taking me places yeah. where I needed to do a book launch, giving me that support. You know, my son's been there. He's helped me with my social media side. I don't think I would have been able to do it as successfully as I would have done without their support. That's really important to have that family support because mm. I, I wouldn't have been able to do this otherwise. But I always make sure that my family come first. So if I have a day out, I need to do something. I always make sure that my housework is done. I, you know, I try to balance that you know it's not perfect 100% but you know they have food cooked and they, they can manage to do their own things now you know everyone does their mm. little bit and but when they were younger I don't think I would have been able to do all this now having mm -hmm. young children at home their needs are different yeah so you know there's pros and cons okay. but for me alhamdulillah I can say that that worked for me I, I still you know, I, I'm approaching my 50s. People say I'm still young. You know, sometimes I feel mentally old. The things that I do, I do get tired of it. Sometimes I sit back and I think, why am I doing all this? You know, it's a lot of work I've taken on. But then I enjoy that. I like to keep busy. I don't like to just sit around. And I'm not a TV person. I don't watch TV. I, I do different things. I do reading. Um, Alhamdulillah, you know, it's lots of different things where I've done over my the last 10 years I've met lots of different people I learned from them and and I and I teach that to my children you know I want you to be able to go out there and do things especially my daughter I've only got one daughter you know don't you know have a voice you know don't let someone else have that voice for you do the things that you want to do you know that she she's a uh, she's a poet she does spoken word poetry she developed that herself I've supported her in that. But I think that's really important for me that I was there when they were younger and they appreciate that. And mm. now it's their turn where send them around to do errands, you know, go and get the shopping or do something because they know that I've done my bit. Uh, and, and I think it, that's, you know, to have that close family unit, I think, alhamdulillah, I can say that that's worked for me in that sense yes it's yeah. had its challenges it hasn't been 100 percent perfect but you know allah gives us these challenges to make us who we are and mm. you know i've had challenges over the years but who doesn't in their life but it's taught me patience things don't happen overnight you have to work for things and things only come when allah decides it's good for you and it's ready for you and I've always had that vision that things aren't going to happen because I want it to happen there and then. It's only if Allah will make it happen. And, I, and I've learned that over the years. So I think even though uh, for someone they would want things quickly, uh, uh, even with, you know, why it took so long for Laska to be published, it took me six years, a lot of patience, a lot of persistence, perseverance, and that taught me over the years that, you know, you have to work for something. It's not going to happen quickly, but it taught me a, a lot of patience. So I would say I'm a very patient person. And if things don't work out, I will take a back seat and say, OK, things didn't work out because Allah didn't want it to happen. And I try to teach that to my children, you know, when it comes to, mm. you know, searching for jobs or wanting to do things in their life. 
things take time. So, um, yes, it, it's been up and down, but Alhamdulillah, it's been a journey where I've learned so much from, a lot of experience. Um, I'm, I wanted to bounce my thoughts off you and you tell me what you think uh, about some of the, because I, I tried to list down some of the positives and some of the challenges of getting married young, just so that our <clears throat> our listeners and viewers can, you know, maybe think about it for themselves, you know. Um, some of the pros or some of the positives that I feel like um, I experienced from getting married young was uh, obviously experiencing the romantic side of life, you know, at a young age, okay? Mm. Uh, don't wanna, I, I think we sometimes forget that when we're older, right? <laughs> like how it felt at that time um, and how it was actually really nice to have that companionship, that love, um, which for me, definitely I was yearning for, you know, like I actually really wanted to get married. Um, I think I wanted to get married since I was about 16, to be honest. Um, so my parents just kind of facilitated it. Um, so I think that having that romance in your life, especially if you're the sort of person who's yearning for that, uh, I feel like that part of you gets uh, kind of satisfied. Um, I think also having a lot of energy at that age, you know, is definitely a pro when you have kids. Um, like for me, I, I, I didn't find getting married so life-changing, but I found having my first child extremely life-changing and a little bit of a shock actually, like as to how, just how much responsibility it was, you know? Um, I think I had just imagined that I would just like uh, carry my little baby with me and just carry on as normal, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think most of us kind of underestimate what it's actually like to have a new baby. But at the same time, because you're young and you've got energy, you've got, you, your body does deal with it, I think better probably. And um, also you, you've still got that, you've got the energy to kind of take the challenges head on. Um, so I, I felt like that was a pro. Um, also, I feel like I, uh, we should view it as an investment. You know, like all those years, like people invest their time into a career. They invest their time into building wealth, for example. People invest their life into building all sorts of things. But I guess what I feel very uh, grateful for is having had the opportunity to spend, I would get, say, my 20s especially and my 30s um, investing in the next generation, you know, because that's literally what we were doing, right? Investing in building the human beings, the believers of the future. Um, and I don't think a lot of young people are thinking of motherhood and parenthood in that way. And we need to kind of revive that, that sense of purpose, you know, because um, uh, uh, Sister Shahida, I just share with you that at one point, I remember when I had like three little babies and although I was quite a motivated and driven mum, because our society doesn't value motherhood, right? Like wide society doesn't see motherhood as 
something to be proud of, you know, um, or something that is a significant contribution, right? Uh, I think we also internalize that some, somehow. Mm -hmm. And I remember at one point, maybe I was just feeling down one day uh, because I'd had some challenges or whatever. And I was just talking to my dad and I said, dad, you know, I, I what's my legacy going to be? What's my legacy going to be, right? <laughs> you know, like I, I need to do other things. I, there's so many I want to do. And he was like, well, what do you think these are? He <laughs> pointed to my kids. And and I, I still thought, of course, of course, you know, like my kids are a huge part of my legacy, right? Like, so I think sometimes we we forget that because the wider society and the culture that we've been brought up in never really talk to us about motherhood in that way, you know? Um, so I would say one of the pros is that it's a huge investment and you will reap, inshallah, the the fruit of that investment not just in this life later on but inshallah in the in the life hereafter and generations to come and i think the other thing is that um having so much responsibility at such a young age makes you just a a SWAT team you know it turns you into a SWAT team right like you you're literally able to you value your time Subhanallah, like I don't think I ever valued my time like I did once I had kids, especially. Mm -hmm. And you realize how much time you used to waste, I think, as well. Um, but then it makes you into this person who can manage lots of things, you know. Um, like you were, you were saying, like while my kids were young, I used to write as well, you know. That was like I, I see sisters finding so many innovative ways of. Um, doing or expressing their talents um, around their kids, you know, which is, or with their kids even, you know, and I think that's, that's a great thing. And that's a great, almost like skill that you develop um, if you get married young. In terms of the challenges, oh, and also I think, you know, you're quite protected as well. I, I think, again, we forget what it was like as a teenager you know, in a culture that's constantly bombarding you with romantic music, love songs, <laughs> you know, images and, <laughs> you know, all of that, films, um, how, you know, you can become kind of lost, um, you can get attracted to the wrong sort of thing, but there's a certain type of calmness I feel like marriage brought, um, you know, to me as a as a hormonal teenager <laughs> um, and in terms of challenges I think it's challenging when most people around you aren't getting married young you know <laughs> and so all the other sisters are still in education or they're still doing other things and because society like I said doesn't really value motherhood as it should you can start having that FOMO, you know, that feeling of missing out, the fear of missing out or fear of, am I really doing anything worthy? And, you know, you have to almost like remind yourself constantly um, that actually what I'm doing is very meaningful. It's very important. These children are, you know, the believers of the future. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges that 
the fact that society doesn't value it as much as it should be valued. Um, but, and also, yes, if there are things that you wanted to do in your, in your, like, for example, for me, in terms of education, I had just finished my A-levels when I got married. And although I could have gone on to university, um, <clears throat> once I had a child, you know, that became challenging. Uh, but I found other ways of studying that were, I mean, the internet was there by then, you know, so so that was good. Um, <clears throat> but what I mean is I did have to put my studies on, certain types of studies on hold um, until much later. But I think it doesn't mean anything completely needs to stop. So for example, I still continued learning through online courses, through um, uh, videos, audios, you know, having an online tutor, for example, for Arabic, stuff like that. So I think it makes you resourceful as well. What do you think about those <laughs> points that I've made? I think that's really interesting. We do tend to forget how important family life and motherhood is. And and you're absolutely right where I feel in this day and age where we're almost living up to society, you know, wanting to please society, living our lives because everyone else is doing the same thing. doesn't mean it's right, but it, it's, mm. it's everyone who is... Um, it, it, it's, it just seems to be very normal now where, you know, marriage is delayed, career comes first. And I, I think it, it depends on the individual. You know, it, you are right when you say um, you work around your children. You know, for me, I'm still working around my children because, mm. you know, I am still there for them. And um, and I and I try to teach them that because they're older now. I've got Ibrahim is 30, Imran, who's um, 24. I had a gap, a bigger gap between them two. Uh, and then Anik, who's 21, and my daughter Mina, who's coming on to 18. And I think I've shown them that it's possible to do things, you know, multitasking, you know, as a mother and as a wife that's the word is multitasking is how you fit in the things in your life. Uh, but, you know, are we doing it for our own satisfaction or because other people are doing it or it's mm. because this is what society is telling us. Things have changed since 20 years ago. You know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, to this day, I still have to say that my mother thinks I'm doing too much. And she would say to me, oh, stop doing this because you need to be at home looking after your children. But then I have to remind her and say they are older now. You know, I'm not neglecting mm -hmm. them because she's still very set in her way. She's still very traditional. She, she, she thinks that woman shouldn't be going out there working. She's still in that mindset because of the life that she had. She stayed at home and she raised us. And I think it's... It's difficult. You know, we all have different support needs. Um, if we didn't have that support, I don't think it would have been possible for any woman to be able to go out and do the things that she's doing. And, it, mm. you know, it, I would say, you know, I've had my challenges, you know, even doing this. You know, sometimes when I was starting out and I, and I when I started out doing all this, I, I used to think to myself, well, can I manage it? You know, I could never imagine myself being in a full-time job 
which developed later in my life you know so I would say I I put my aspirations and my dreams on hold until my children were older and then I started to do that so I didn't pick a year that I would do it in this particular year it sort of developed quite naturally you know my, I had my daughter she was going to school and I thought well you know I don't want to have any more children and I want to start doing things in my life and and I think it's almost as if I would say having self-approval you know wanting to be able to do something for my own satisfaction because I wanted to feel mm -hmm. that I'm doing something that's you know valued you know something that I'm interested in you know I've done lots of different things lots of different projects but then that that's made me feel that I've learned different things I wouldn't be able to do that uh, by staying at home uh, you know years ago you know it just wasn't possible and so, you know, we are learning things in different ways and also um, being there for my children. And then they're, they're still, you know, very close and they've learned a lot of things from me. And I think that, Alhamdulillah, you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm showing off about this, but my children listen. You know, I was there for them. They, they, they are mm. well behaved. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that because I, I, I'm as, a, as an example is because I was there for them. I really believe that giving that that, that support and those needs when they needed it most. And yes. uh, Alhamdulillah, you know, it's, you know, I'm friends with my children. You know, they can tell me anything yeah. and, I, and, and we talk about lots of different things. And um, so I think that was probably the most rewarding journey for me rather than writing my book and getting it published. You know, so, some people would put that as their most rewarding thing that they've done in their life is having a career. For me, it's having children who have grown up, alhamdulillah, to learn Islam, who are good and who listen. I think that would be mm. the biggest achievement in my life because it's been hard, Asham. but then, you know, we took that on. And I wouldn't say, you know, no amount of money can pay for that. No amount of having mm. so much exactly. money in the world will not make you happy. What makes me happy is seeing my children who pray five times a day, you know, who go to the mosque, you know, who are, that, that, that oh, is the most yes. important for me to see. And, you know, fast when it's Ramadan and, and, and they, they, they do the things that they should be doing and, and having that balance of, yes, you know, uh, having their uh, social life, of course they're going to have that. Um, and even from a young age, they didn't go out, you know, we, we didn't allow that a lot. They, they did meet friends after school, never late nighters. We, we made sure that they understood what's wrong and what's right at teenage years, because that's the hardest years, I would say, for any child. Yep. But we, we taught them and, and we showed <clears> them. <throat> and so I would say that that is the biggest achievement of, of my life, that they're there and they've listened and they're good Muslims. And I think, you know, what you said about your mom, and uh, I think most of us, our, our moms do remind us of that, you know, like <laughs> not to do too much, um, especially outside of the home. And I do think there's wisdom in in their voice, you know, in, in, in mm. what they're saying, in that it almost helps us to temper what we're doing. You know, it <clears throat> it's like the voice of conscience or the voice of reason that kind of reminds us don't get too carried away, you know, because I think it is very possible to overcommit. And um, I think I'm constantly having to like re um, 
re, I, I guess, uh, review. Am I doing too much? What can I let go of? What's my maximum? You know, I'm not going to do more than this. Learning to say no, because, you know, like I heard this saying some time back and it, it's really stuck with me that every time you say yes to something, you've got to ask yourself, what are you saying no to, right? Simultaneously, what are you saying no to? Because for every yes, you're actually saying no to something else. So if you can get really clear on what you're saying no to, um, I think that really helps. So if I'm going to add one more thing onto my plate, does that mean that I'm now going to be saying no to time with my husband, for example? Um, if I add something else, it, does it mean I'm saying no now to that thing I used to do with my daughter every week, you know, um, that I can't really get back, right? So I think it is really important that we see the the words of our elders as a tempering force you know in our lives i i i just want to add to that i think you know if we can do it that's fine you know no one's saying that you can't can you manage it in your life <clears throat> is it going to have an effect on other things that you do now, I've taken a lot of things on and, and then I would say the first thing I think about is have I got time to do this? Can I fit it in? You know, it's not mm -hmm. going to change the stuff I do at home because I will continue to do that at home because I've got more help at home with you know my daughter helping me to do things and the boys do things every now and again. That really helps. If they didn't do that, then I would have thought, well, I can't do this because I'm having to do more work at home. So I think... Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is, uh, I would say, you know, our, we do, you know, listen to our parents. They're, they're from a different generation. Their lives were different, how they grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's it's good to be reminded of that, you know, to zone in. And, and, and sometimes we lose focus, but we can say that. Mm -hmm. And it's good to get back into the focus. But one thing we do have to remember is, that you know islam is the most important thing in our life and you know we do face challenges every day can you say that again sorry sorry one thing we islam, have to remember is that okay. one thing we have to remember is islam is the most important thing in our lives and sometimes mm -hmm. we tend to forget that in the things that we do in our daily activities and even when we're doing our five daily prayers you know for me i make sure that whatever i do i do it around my prayers I think I work from home full time. Uh, that came about because of the pandemic, what we all experience. That was worked mm. really well for me because I can get up early. Yeah. I can do my hours. I can do my prayers on time. I can cook in between, put the washing out. You know, these things around my work where we <laughs> never thought it would be yeah. possible. Uh, but they really <clears throat> mattered to me because mm. when I was working yes. in the office, it was always thinking about when I come home, what do I do first? Get the cooking on, we've got clothes in the dryer, or yeah. if the boys are at home, they would have already done that, you know, those kind of things. And I don't, you know, I think over the years, I've never put work on my husband because he had a full-time job, because I made sure that, you know, he was the sole earner. I would do the other things where he can just go out and do his job. And that's still with us today. Okay, 
um, I think it's as you grow up, um, you sort of, it's more of you're there and um, you're still doing the things that you, you're, you're doing. You've got the children to help you. Um, but I, I'm, I, I've still done things over the years at home. I, I think I've taken on that by myself uh, for many, many years. I know there are some husbands who help their wives, but I think, you know, he does gardening. That's the only thing I would say, you know, the garden is his, you know, you deal with that. But it's just because of the, of how we grew up and with the children is that's the role that I took on, being a housewife, being a mother, that would be my role. And then he would go out and, and work and bring him the money and, and you know, mm-hmm. why would I want him to do extra work when he comes back uh, from a whole day uh, doing a hard job? And that is still yeah. like that today. But I'm happy with that because I've learned to have that balance. It's taught me different skills. I can multi-skill. Um, yes, there may be the odd occasion where I might ask him to do something if I'm out, you know, or something needs doing. But I very rarely, and I think that's just worked for us. You know, we're as you get older, you don't change much. I would say, you know, you, you we're we're stuck in our routine now, and why would we need to sort of change that? Obviously, it, it's 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 brought a lot of benefits me working from home, and I would like to continue to do so. Um, and a lot of blessings, you know, spending more time at home. I've realised that. I'm not having that social life anymore. You know, it's, you know, I am going out to the mosque uh, as and when I need to, shopping, you know, even visiting relatives, that's all gone because of the pandemic. And I'm just used to that now. But I have to start sort of getting back into that routine where, you know, start visiting people again. It's all changed in in the last 18 months, I, I have to say. It's become different, but we value our life more. And being in the first mm. lockdown, I think that's taught us so many things and it's taught us definitely what family life is really about and Allah's given that for a reason where we realize we can do things but then we always have to come back and focus on Allah and the things that we do in our life because without Allah's blessings we wouldn't be able to do all this and uh, the the things I've been blessed Mm -hmm. with you know alhamdulillah you know I say that every day in my prayers that there are some things I never asked for but Allah Blessed, it, uh, blessed me with that and I have to understand why. He, he didn't have to but he did and it's how we make use of that blessings and how we appreciate it. It's appreciating life in a different way where you know, if we're ungrateful Allah can take that away from us within seconds and it, it's being it all comes together, being patient being resilient, being grateful and it's what makes who we are as a character so I would say um, you know motherhood and, and being a wife has taught me many many different things you know yes we all squabble don't we sure. husbands and wives who doesn't we all have disagreements and I think I have to say with now you know the things that we used to have disagreements with like, years ago I look back on it I think that was very silly and very petty you know we didn't need to argue about that but now it's like <laughs> if the same situation mm-hmm. arises I just take it calmly um, and and take a back seat, really, because it doesn't matter anymore. It did matter then, 20 years ago. Mm. But now it's like, is it worth arguing about? You know, we all have hot-headed moments, calm down, talk about it later. Mm-hmm. That's something that I learned is 
don't argue with your husband if you know they're in a, a an angry state leave it you know let it mm. calm down you can always go back to it and talk but i had to you know i think we all learned that in uh, uh in different ways but it it, it it's a it's a learning no one comes to a marriage knowing absolutely everything it's an empty box you add to it you build it you fill that box up with different blessings different things in your life and you learn from it um and i would say i'm still learning you know i might be coming on to 50 i've been married what 31 mm -hmm. years but every day has uh, its blessings and and challenges so i thought i'd add that recipe <laughs> yeah Yes, yeah, so, so you highlight something very important, which is, I guess, that it's it's a negotiation, isn't it? Like with your family as to what a person can manage and what works for the family and especially negotiating with one's spouse, right? Um, and the other thing you highlighted, which is beautiful, is seeing your children worship Allah. It reminded me of, um, <clears throat> you know, the famous dua, that, um, oh Allah, bestow upon us from our spouses and our children the coolness of our eyes um, and make us leaders of the righteous. When you read the, the explanation of this dua, uh, when it says the coolness of our eyes, um, the scholars said it means that let me see them worshipping you. You know, the pleasure that a parent gets um, from seeing their family worshipping Allah and, and be true to Allah. And so it really reminded me of that. that actually, that is a huge blessing. Can I add Inshallah. one thing to that? Um, I think yes, um, sure. one word I didn't mention is, you know, I taught my children never to be materialistic. And I think the deaths that we've had in our family, so I lost my father at the age of 13, I lost my twin sister when I was 25, I lost my brother three years ago. And I think that's really helped us focus our lives differently because of the pain that we experience. And I have shown my children that we don't focus on oh. the things that are materialistic in our lives. Now, there are... Um, you know, obviously, when they're teenagers, they want lots of different things. Do you need to have designer things? You know, do you need to have this? Do you need to have that? There are people out there in this world who don't have the basics. And I and I remind them of that. And that's something that I've taught them. Don't ever be materialistic because you can lose focus on your iman and what life is really about. And, you know, that that's something that all families face all families have that challenge is you know materialistic and and society what it teaches us it, it's around us all the time we've got too many temptations more temptations than what we had when we were growing up you know you've got the internet you've got mobile phones you, you know i i got a mobile phone when i was in my mid-30s i didn't need to have one all my life you know it's you know how how things how technology is changing us as well you know do we need to have all this screen time mm -hmm. Now, are we valuing uh, our time with our families? You know, get off the screen, get off the computer. You know, sometimes I do have to tell my lot where they they play their games. You know, that who doesn't? You know, they have their their social time. But then mm -hmm. I sometimes I think, well, 
you know, I've been told, my mother tells me, don't be too hard on them because what if they're going out late at night and you, and you couldn't, and, and you're wondering where they were or that they were going out constantly, what were they doing? You know, that kind of thing. So Sister Shahida, uh, please could you now tell us about the new Cambridge Mosque and what's so special about it? What's all the fuss about? You know, what is an eco-mosque in the first place? You know, a lot of people ask that question. Um, and then please tell us about your role as trustee and how important is it, what roles can Muslim women play in mosques such as the Cambridge Mosque? Okay, so say the Cambridge Central Mosque opened its doors in 2019 uh, and it was 11 years in the making so what happened was um the existing mosque that we had on Morton road uh the abu Bakr mosque it was wasn't accommodating uh lots of people it was uh, the premises was getting too small uh when people were coming to do their juma prayers they were praying on the streets uh so sheikh abdul hakim murad he was the mastermind of the project uh, he took on the job of uh, building Cambridge's first purpose-built mosque and Europe's first eco-mosque. Uh, so uh, this is quite unique uh, for Europe itself. Uh, to build a mosque of this nature uh, is such a beautiful building. Um, I would say it's a bridge between um, for non-Muslims and Muslims alike. Uh, it's brought together lots of communities. Uh, when you actually go into the mosque, it's absolutely beautiful. You can see the glue lamb timber trees. It's almost walking into a forest. It really has uh, a different theme to that. There's so many uh, eco features. We've got the uh, solar panels, um, you know, natural floor heating, you know, lots of different things. You know, please have a look at the website. You can see what the mosque is all about. Uh, so I was approached in 2017 uh, when the mosque was being built. Uh, and uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, he sent one of his students over to my house, who actually knew Ibrahim at the time, uh, my son Ibrahim. And so when he came to visit, I thought he was going to ask something like, um, can we help with the fundraising? You know, the mosque obviously needed <laughs> funds yeah. and, and money to be able to continue their building. And it came as a total surprise to me when I was asked, would I be interested in becoming a trustee of the mosque? So at the time, I had um, uh, no hesitation. My husband was there at the time, and he said, uh, "Just go for it. You know, there's you don't need to think about this. Just do it." <laughs> uh, and I think at the time, I didn't realize how big a project this really was. You know, that the uh, the the attention the mosque would have, and actually, you know, did have. I, I don't think it occurred to anyone at the time. It was still being built, so I saw. Uh, you know, the the stages of it being built and the development. Uh, and it opened it, its doors in 2019. So I've been um, uh, part of the board and I am one of the two uh, sisters, uh, female trustees of the mosque. So we have um, another sister who's based in Turkey. So she came on before I did. Uh, but for me to be asked, you know, being a local, being part of the community, uh, you know, I was truly honoured to be asked to be in that position. And 
I think it's been an amazing journey, amazing experience for myself. And I think it's our mosque has actually shown it, it, it's a true example of sisters being involved in de decision making. I think generally with mosques over the years, up and down the country, they have been very male dominated. And sisters have always felt that uh, they've been sort of pushed out. They, they want to be able to be part of decision making and be part of the mosque. And um, our mosque is a true example. There are mosques uh, in the UK where they do have other female trustees. So for me, it's been a very interesting journey. Um, it's been a journey where I never expect it to you know, happen in my life, to be part of that. And I want to be able to encourage other sisters to, you know, to be part of decision-making, to be part of the mosque. Um, we have so many visitors, you know, every single week. There's been a such an interesting journey where I've seen how what, what is required for a mosque to run, all these decision-making, these policies that have to be put in place. It's not just a building where people just go in and, and do their prayers and then come out. There's just so many different things that are going on behind the scenes. You know, we have to make those decisions. When the mosque closed because of covid um, it was only open for a year, so we had to shut the doors. Um, and, you know, that was a, quite a very sad time because I went back um, three months later when it did open. This was last year in July. Felt very emotional, um, you know, just standing in the in the prayer hall because of what we've all been through in those three months. You know, so many deaths, you know, so many people um, uh, having the disease, you know, what, it's taught us in our lives. And I really did miss the mosque. It, it, it was, uh, for me, it's a place where I can go to where it's very calm, very serene, get away from the, our busy lives and and retreat. I would say that that is my place of retreat, you know, actually being in the prayer hall. Because sometimes we do tend for, to forget, yeah. you know, what we're supposed to be doing here in the first place. What I do find um, is, you know, sometimes, it, it's when well, we are in the place of prayer and we do have to respect that. But, you know, we do tend to sort of always check on our phones. You know, we're sitting, waiting for the prayer to start. And do we need to be doing that in the mosque? That, that's taught me a lot of um, resilience, a lot of patience, because I think, you know, we need to put this away. You know, we're in a mosque. We come here to yeah. pray. Why are we praying? You know, we need to give our true focus to Allah. We're not here to... Uh, to look at the um, the beautiful decorations and and yes, of course, you know we are in awe of that, but sometimes we we do sort of tend to forget that it's a place of prayer. Uh, so mm. for sisters, you know, I we we do need to see more sisters coming forward. You know, we do need to have that more of a connection and more sisters being confident and encouraging them. You know, for me, it, it wasn't a, a journey where I knew all the answers to everything and I brought all the skills to that role. You know, not at all. You know, I'm still learning. It's been four years um, and uh, the skills that I have learned. And I think prior to that, it's the work that I've also done in the past that that helped me to um, achieve this role. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons being part of the community uh, they needed someone within the community. You know, I won't be there forever, obviously, but we would like to see you know other sisters be involved and be 
feel to be part of that. And I think that's probably the best thing that ever happened in my life. You know, I never expected something like this. And Alhamdulillah, sure. Allah granted that. And you know, every time I walk in the mosque, I still have to sort of remind myself that, you know, I am part of this mosque. And it, it, I'm, I can only tell the story where I was literally born off Mill Road. My, my parents had a home on Mill mm -hmm. Road. We grew up on Mill Road. And now I'm part of the mosque, which is on Mill Road. And I don't think anyone can, uh, you know, say the same story. People find that very fascinating because I can say that I was just born 100 yards from here. And mm -hmm. it's just been, you know, I hope that the future generations will be inspired, and especially the sisters and the young girls, because uh, I hope that this is an example. You know, we want to see more girls out there, you know, having a voice, coming forward, having leadership skills, having the confidence of learning this. And uh, that's exactly what I want to see. I don't want to be the speakers for them. I want them to be speakers for themselves and, and to build that confidence and be part of that. What do you think, Sister Shahida, what do you think, like, has been, can you give us some specific examples of, apart from the fact, obviously, that each human bring, being brings their skills and their different perspectives, what do the sisters involved with the project or with the, with the masjid, what do you feel that they bring that had they not been there would not have been, you know, brought to the table? Well, we have uh, lots of female volunteers. And, uh, that you know, they brought all their different skills with them, you know, to be part of the mosque, to help the mosque, especially on a Friday prayer, mm -hmm. Jumma prayer, you know, where we do have sisters helping out. And I think that's been, you know, really good. Their commitment, their, their, their patience, you know, what they'd be able to do to help our mosque. Uh, so it, it, I think in general, it's been good seeing lots of different communities coming together uh, from uh, all face I have to say you know it's not just about us Muslims it's the bridge the connections that we've had from people of all faiths and non-faith where they've actually come to learn about Islam um, and our sisters as well where sisters we've never seen before um, they finally felt that they could come and visit a mosque you know they we have had other well, sisters yes. where probably in the past not ever felt welcome you know coming to a mosque uh, it, it's a, a case with many mm. mosques in the UK, I'm afraid. You know, that's something we tend to not want to talk about, but, you know, the issues are there. Yes. You know, women have different skills in themselves, you know, let them be part of that decision-making uh, rather than the men just continue to make the decisions on their own, making decisions for the system. And I guess you... you mm. I guess because you can empathise as well with female experience at the mosque it you can help make the experience even better right for the sisters yes and, and you know i don't have the answer to every question and i'm, I'm not saying that i'm skilled in absolutely everything mm -hmm. we all bring different skills you know to everything that we do uh, you know different viewpoints different yes. angles uh, so everyone will will bring something unique something different so i hope in future years that there will be other sisters who will come forward and, and play that role. And I think it's important for 
the mosque being for the future generation. This isn't for us, the mosque. It's for the future generation is how they live and how they want to be part of that. Uh, so I think um, that's how I see. I, I see our mosque as our local mosque. I know it's a big international mosque where yeah. you know, a lot of eyes, a lot of focus <laughs> on that. But for me, it's our local mosque. It, it's a place where I've grown up, seen it develop, be part of that. Uh, and alhamdulillah, you know, I couldn't ask for more. It, it's been an amazing journey. And I've learned so much. You know, we all have our challenges, as I said, in our lives where, you know, we we do learn from them. You know, we, we learn from mistakes. We learn from the things that didn't quite work out. Uh, but I hope to continue to, uh, as long as I'm able to, um, and when my term comes to an end, let's see other sisters come forward and, and bring something better, better than what I could have done. That's what I'd like to see. Oh, um, I'll tell you my impression of the mosque when I first came, um, apart from the fact that it, you know, there's a beautiful garden at the front, there's waterfall. So it kind of evokes that kind of nature connection with nature, connection with Allah's creation. Um, I think one of the things that struck me was apart from the kind of architecture, you know, evoking the prophet's mosque and the, the palm trees, right. That, mm. um, uh, were kind of the pillars of the Prophet's mosque. Um, apart from that, the fact that the the main prayer hall is one big prayer hall for brothers and sisters, I think a lot of people will be struck by that. Which is and 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 because we've gotten used to this kind of misconception, I would say, or feeling that uh, the the sisters section of a mosque has to be like completely separate and completely what's the word cut off really from the other section of the mosque and obviously sometimes that's because of logistics and architecture and all that but I think people actually think that it's got to be like that and people actually sometimes think that there's a brother there's a men's area of a mosque where women are not even allowed to put their feet into you know they almost feel like there's like a religious barrier or something right when actually you look at the prophet sallallahu mosque it was one big room right one massive space one massive hall you could say the women were the the back rows and the men were the front rows it wasn't there was not even a barrier between them you know and i think we've just gotten so used to putting physical barriers um, but we think that's the norm. And one of the things that I heard um, Imam, the Imam telling us when we were having a tour, he said that uh, the mosque did a consultation with the local community, right, with the women of the local community to ask what type of barrier they would like, and also with the, with the brothers. And um, he said that there were three types of replies that came out. <laughs> he said one was people who wanted complete a complete barrier you know a full length barrier so they didn't have they didn't they couldn't kind of see the men or the men couldn't see them um others wanted something a little in between you know like something kind of halfway so that they could see the imam like we forget that the female companions they could see the prophet you know they could see the imam when they were in the prayer and and we've gotten used to like not not being able to see the imam at all. 
So one of the things that happened, and this has happened so many times in one of our local mosques, when the sound system fails, okay, and the sisters are in the middle of the salah, right? They have no idea what to do because they cannot mm. see anyone in front of them. Do you know what I mean? They can't see the men. So because of that, they just end up being, getting really confused, ending their salah. You know, I've seen this happen a few times. Mm. Um, but actually, the Prophet's mosque, you could see the imam. I mean, this sounds revolutionary, but it's actually not, you know. Um, but yeah, so he said some sisters wanted the half barrier, so they could see, but there was a little bit of privacy if they wanted, you know. And then he said some people wanted no barrier. And so he said that we tried to incorporate all three um, by having these beautiful uh, uh, screens, right, that you've got, which can be moved around. Um, so I, I really loved that. Uh, I love the fact that you could see the imam, you could hear from when the imam is addressing the congregation, the women feel like he's talking to them, you know. Um, yeah, but I, I also I, I, like I, the fact that at the back you had that, have that soundproof uh, kind of doors, soundproof doors, so that mothers with small babies, especially if they're crying and stuff like that, they could go behind that, even though it's glass, they can see um it's soundproof so they don't feel like they're disturbing you know whatever's going on in the main hall right so i thought that was beautiful it, it accommodates for all sisters i mean even when mm. i go in and um i think most of the sisters do like to pray in the main prayer hall behind the screens so you've got yeah. two levels of screen the highest level and the and the level that goes up to just above the waist really but for me personally mm. i prefer to pray uh, behind a taller screen so when I go okay. in to do my prayer I prefer that you know uh, a screen which is taller but we have sisters uh, as you said who can pray in the mother and toddler room it's soundproof um, so mm. we don't discourage sisters bringing their children to the mosque you know they have a exactly. place to pray where the children can scream all they like um, and upstairs <laughs> as well where there are sisters who would rather pray privately upstairs and oh, yeah. not the screen and uh, um, so I do remember that uh, the, the time when I, I was asked you know what do you think about the screens upstairs uh, we, we've got the uh, the glass panel uh, which looks out where the balcony is uh, so I do mm. remember having that conversation with the uh, uh, with the uh, constructors and you know what we thought of did we want a full screen uh, or glass panel or would it be half uh, and then they thought it would be good to have a half. That's something I agreed mm -hmm. on because it's accommodating for everyone. So, you know, the mosque yes. is for not for cer certain sections of the community. I think it's really important for sisters to come. And, and I have to say this, there are sisters who had never been to the other mosques in their life. And then when our uh, Cape mm, Center Mosque September. opened, they started to come to the mosque because they felt welcome and it was a place for them. And I think that's been amazing to see. Mashallah. Well, um, Sister Shahida, I'm very conscious that you know of, of, that I've taken so much of your time. It's okay. Um, it's is there any? Is, yeah. Is there any kind of last message that you'd like to give our brothers and sisters, um, either regarding um, involvement in mosques or um, 
you know, the, I guess, telling the stories of our culture and the themes that you've talked about today? You know, I, I think whatever you do in your life, do it from the heart because it will reflect better on you and the work that you do. It will show in a different way. Um, and I think whatever you do is for the sake of Allah, uh, not to please other people. That That's something that I've learned over the years is are we doing it to please other people or are we doing it for the sake of Allah? You know, we're all, we all see life as a competition sometimes. You know, no one is in competition with anyone. You know, we all have different blessings, different gifts from Allah. Our lives are all different. So I think it's doing what you feel is right and what is good for you and your family. And, you know, be part of making, our, you know, Islam better um, for the people that we have to work with, with, with uh, Muslims and people of all faiths is bridging that connection and it's who we show as we are, you know, how we are, are seen in the outside world. So it all comes together uh, and it's all down to your own personal character. So, you know, be part of what you feel you want to do and, uh, you know, live your life to the full and the best you can. Uh, so, you know, I don't have the answer to everything, mm. but it's the experience that I've had in my life where I've learned so many things. Well, Jazakallah Khairan, Sister Shahida, I really appreciate your wisdom and your thoughts and sharing all of the experience with us. Please tell us the names of some of your the books that people can read that you've written. Okay. So I've written uh, uh, Laskar, which is a historical fiction novel based on an Asian seaman who arrived in England and settled in Victorian England. Uh, in the 1880s, uh, and a set of three books uh, in the Rani series. Uh, so please check out my website, uh, shahidarahman.co.uk. All the details are on there. Oh, Jazakallah khairan, sister um, Shahida. We really appreciate your time. Uh, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, um, I think uh, sister Shahida gave us great advice there at the end. You know, she said, you know, it's not about competing in this dunya, as Allah says in the Quran, that it's for the pleasure of Allah and striving in Allah's way that the competitors should compete. So inshallah, let us all um, strive um, and see people like Sister Shahida as role models, great role models for us. And with that, brothers and sisters, I'm going to bid you farewell. Please share this episode with somebody somebody new maybe somebody who's never heard the Ilm Feed podcast you never know who you might inspire and uh, please do look up sister Shahida Rahman as well as the Cambridge Central Mosque online and you'll find out more about the eco mosque and what exactly an eco mosque looks like and what it means jazakumullah khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك